Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 14, Good Pasture, Right Now. What is a false shepherd? What was the essential work on the cross? Why do we struggle to hear the voice of God? We've got answers to those questions, plus five reasons the incarnation is so important, as Steve gives us a recap of John's gospel so far and a study of John chapter 10. I'm going to try in maybe 15 minutes to give a really brief overview of some of the main themes in John's Gospel. I've said all along that I find John's Gospel, and I love all four Gospels, probably we all do, but it's it's fascinating. It's so different from the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, in that it was written uh, a generation, maybe a generation and a half later. Uh, John was dealing with different issues in, in a young church, He was dealing with the rise of Gnosticism. Uh, There was just greater revelation on uh, who is this King of Glory, um, to quote Psalm 24. And so I I wanted to just again give a bit of an overview, and I'll start where John started, which is the prologue, chapter 1, the first 18 verses uh, are remarkable. you know, there's, there'll come a day I would love to teach just on the prologue for six or eight or ten weeks. But it is incredibly rich. Uh, I just read recently that there are, there are some commentators who think that John wrote it as a summary at the end and then put it at the front. Who knows? But there's so much to it. And uh, so if, uh, if you're listening or watching out there, we'll go to John chapter 1. I've said before that St. Augustine said that these are the most sublime words ever penned. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through Him. Apart from Him, not one thing was created that has ever been created. Life was in Him, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, the darkness does not overcome it. Um, John is setting the stage for this whole gospel. And, and, it, and one of the themes that we talked about is understanding how multi-layered uh, John's gospel is. He writes with layers and layers of meaning. I think we have had a tendency um, to read uh, sort of two-dimensionally. And we've, we've either ignored or shied away from understanding that there are many, many levels Uh, John opens with a clear declaration, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, In the beginning was the Word. There's no starting point. Uh, John is emphasizing the word logos, uh, its eternal existence. And logos is a bigger word than than just word. We, we, in English, we always have to wrestle with the fact that, that Greek is so much richer than English. And so we, we uh, translate Logos as word, but it really means the idea, the thought behind the spoken word. It includes the vision, the plan, the wisdom that inspires that, uh, that word. And so he says, uh, in the beginning was the word, the word was. He is, he is establishing, I'm going to come back to this again and again and again, he was establishing clearly the complete divinity of Christ, that he was completely man and he was completely God. And, um, 
he develops this kind of um, pre-creation theme through his whole gospel. That, that certainly Jesus didn't start with the incarnation. He didn't even start with the creation. And he goes on to say the word was with God. The Son is a distinct person in the triune Godhead. Um, the Trinity is, is a fascinating thing that, that is beginning to develop in John. But really, it took three centuries for, the, for the, the church to begin to understand and put words to, to the Trinity. And the Word was God. The Son of God is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. He has the same divinity as the Father. We've talked a lot about that. I have to resist the urge to get into preaching on that tonight. But if you're really interested, you can go back uh, to the archive uh, uh, segments of this Bible study. Verse 3, <coughs> excuse me, all things were created through him, and apart from him not one thing was created that has ever been created. Uh, all things is bigger than the world. It is all, all of creation. It is the cosmos. And the word cosmos is used a lot by John. So, to try to summarize, because there's so much in here, the main point I want to make for tonight is that John really establishes the whole concept of the Incarnation. Verse 14, a verse we probably all are familiar with, and the Word, the Logos, Christ, the Word became flesh and took up residence among us. We beheld His glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here is the heart, the beginning, and the end of not only John's Gospel, but history itself. God has physically entered human history. John was declaring that Jesus is the full revelation of God. The Nicene Creed which uh, was, was written in 325, says, says this of Christ. The only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. So, again to review, we took quite a bit of time on this earlier, but it brings an obvious question to mind. So what difference does the Incarnation make? Why is it so centrally important? And I would, parenthetically, I would say that one of the richest and most important studies you could ever do is on the Incarnation. I would say another one uh, like it is the Trinity. So why is it so important? I'm going to give you five reasons. There's a lot more than that. One, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. When the Word became flesh, God could never again be understood as an abstract or faceless deity. God has a face. Secondly, it is vital, vital that we absorb this truth. Jesus Christ is the full revelation of God. He is not just uh, one facet of God. God did not become Christ-like. This is who He has been from all eternity. Hi guys. This is who He has been from all eternity. Um, I think too often, especially those of us in the, with an evangelical tradition, we've tended to, to see it as if, okay, God's now going to come as Christ and He's going to become like that. But He is always 
This is who He has always been. There is no aspect of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that is not revealed in who Christ is. He is exactly like the Father. Um, Hebrews 1 verse 3 is a great a great text for that. He is exactly like the Father. The incarnation means that the eternal triune relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has now come to earth. And we're going to talk about that in a few minutes as we actually get into John 10. Third reason why the incarnation is so important. I've stressed this because I'm convinced that in our 21st century evangelicalism we've missed this truth. Jesus did not come as the Father's representative. He did not come as a smaller version of God. We have imagined and preached too small a Christ, and a smaller Christ means a smaller gospel. And I spent a lot of time, Dan was with me in Bulgaria, he had to listen to me talk about this. I just came back from Toronto, they had to listen to me, say, we have not had a big enough understanding of who Christ is. Number four, since Christ came as fully God, then while he was walking on the earth, he was at the same time holding all of creation together. Colossians 1.17 tells us, And by Him all things hold together. So when we read about Jesus healing the sick, or multiplying the food, or, or interacting with the Pharisees, we've got to understand that at the very same time, He was orchestrating all of the activity of all of creation. It's rather mind-boggling. And fifthly, why the... Incarnation is so important. It is the eternal union of man and God. The, the technical word is hypostasis, and it means com- that God and man completely unit, uh, unified. So for all of eternity, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is one of us. He became human, and He will remain human. There is a human right now in the Trinity. So, that was big foundation for us, right? I mean, it was John's foundation in the prologue, so that we've come back to that again and again as we've looked through nine chapters of John's Gospel. But there's a few other themes that I just want to remind you of. We talked about there's a word, meno, M-E-N-O, and it means to abide or to dwell. And it shows up right away in, uh, in that first episode where where two disciples follow him. Um, where are you staying? Where are you meno? It means stay, abide, remain. Well, that becomes a, a central theme 63 times in John's Gospel. There's another, there's so many, I hardly knew where to, how to summarize all this. But <coughs> Jesus said, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom. We have minimized being born again to praying a prayer. Did you pray the prayer or not? Jesus is telling Nicodemus that being born from above means receiving life from a whole other reality. It, it's heaven now. And he says, you, you can't see the kingdom. The, the literal word is perceive. And he says, there's got to be a continual movement to raise our seeing. Um... Well, there's just a lot of verses of that. Let me just, let me leave it at that. John is lifting up your eyes. Uh, John 4.35, lift up your eyes and see. John's gospel is about raising up our vision to more of a heavenly perspective. 
Um, John's purpose in this gospel is to progressively reveal Jesus as the Christ, as fully God, not God's representative. As the magnitude of this revolution, uh, revelation, it is a revolution, unfolds, we see two responses develop. You see it all the way through the gospel. We're going to see it tonight. There's two responses to that. One is, oh, really? Or a variation is, we, we reduce him. A classic example is, uh, if you look at, at the progression in, especially Matthew and John, uh, from rabbi, from teacher to Lord, you will see that the disciples all made that progression with one exception, Judas Iscariot. When he betrayed him, he betrayed him with a kiss. He said, hail, rabbi. And that's another <coughs> sub-theme through here. And so, um, is he rabbi or is he Lord? And for us, I think there's an equivalent in the 21st century. Is he the savior of my life? Did he come so I could go to heaven? Or is he the creator and the Lord of all the cosmos? And then the last theme I want to talk about briefly here is that in John's gospel, we are called again and again to make a decision. We watch others make a decision. And it calls us to make a decision. We saw the, the, um, the blind man who was healed. And then he had to decide, is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the Savior? Is he the, the Son of God or not? Um, and because, and by the way, if you'll recall, even though it meant being kicked out of the synagogue, it meant being completely rejected by, by society, he said, no, I believe that you are the Lord. So, because Jesus came as the light of the world, he always causes the world to be divided. And this is a theme that's so clear all the way through John's Gospel. There are those who come to the light and allow it to change them and to direct them. Secondly, those who resist the light and choose to remain in the false comfort of familiar darkness. That's why people hold on to darkness, which John talks about in the prologue. It's because it's familiar. It, we feel secure. John 3.19, and the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. And so, it comes down to a key question that he asks the blind man that we talked about last time. Do you believe in the Son of Man? I believe, Lord, and he worshipped him. This is the point to which John is taking us. This is where he wants us to end up. This is the goal of his gospel, to understand and embrace who this King of Glory really is. Now that is a very quick overview, but at least it gives us a context for what I want to say tonight. This episode is brought to you by the iThirst Fund. Did you know that Impact Nations has brought the gift of clean water to hundreds of thousands of people in the last 13 years? In almost every community we visit, contaminated water is causing severe illness and even death. By going house to house to distribute water filters, we can eliminate those diseases and help people reach their true potential. At a cost of only $65, each filter can be shared by as many as five homes. 
And of course, whenever we install a filter, we're also telling people about the living water that is Jesus. That is good news to the poor. We couldn't do this without our amazing donors. If you would like to be one of those donors, visit impactnations.com slash clean water. And now, back to the podcast. So tonight, we're going to look at John chapter 10, verses 1 to 21. And uh, if you got your Bibles, that'd be great. Does somebody with a good loud voice, so the microphone picks it up. Um, Dan, you got a good loud voice. Could you read... Oh, the first six verses, please. Sure. I assure you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the door, but climbs in some other way, is a thief and a robber. One who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The doorkeeper opens it for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they recognize his voice. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run, they'll run away from him because they don't recognize the voice of strangers. Jesus gave them this illustration, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Thanks. We'll look at it in two or three sections tonight. Um, we need to remember that the New Testament was originally written without chapters. Uh, St. Jerome added those in the 4th century. So we, we, we tend to read it in chapters. We get to the end of the chapter, we stop. We start fresh again the next day. But uh, we need to understand that this episode is a continuation of what happened in chapter 9. The healed blind man and his interaction with the religious leaders where they're trying to say, you don't know anything, we know the truth, you don't know what it is. And uh, so uh, chapter 9 centers around the question, is Jesus Messiah or isn't he? And this is the context for understanding chapter 10. So the the shepherd, uh, as the leader of Israel, is a prominent Old Testament theme. It's a huge theme in the Old Testament. And Jesus always speaks to people in context. Um, <clears throat> here's a couple of examples. <clears throat> Excuse me, Numbers 27, 16, 17. May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all mankind, appoint a man over this community to go out and to come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, Isaiah forty eleven. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those uh, that have young. Think about, think about the Israelites, uh, the Jews listening to Jesus and understanding this shepherd theme. Not just understanding it, it goes deep into their core being. The patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What were they? They were shepherds. Moses, a shepherd. David, the great messianic king, was a shepherd. And so it became a universally understood term to be a shepherd. They, everybody knew it meant being a ruler or a king. I was reading um, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, today. And, and it's 
it just gives us this wonderful picture and it almost parallels what Jesus is talking about here in John 10. Israel knew God as its shepherd. And uh, shepherding speaks of care and presence and love. What I want to do, because I realize now that I'm kind of going back and forth, let's pick it up again at verse 7. We had the the first one where... uh, uh, where he talks what we just what Dan just said, but let's go to verse seven. Somebody with a loud voice, if you would read verse say seven to oh seven to ten. So again, Jesus said to them, "Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved." and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Thank you. So you see what Jesus is saying here? Um, This whole thing of leading them out and bringing them in goes all the way back to uh, Joshua. Now, Jesus is talking here about good shepherds and bad shepherds. Um, I am absolutely convinced that Jesus spoke the words of John 10 with Ezekiel 34 in mind. If you want to go to Ezekiel 34, I'm going to just highlight a few of the verses. It gives us, I think, a way better understanding of the context of what Jesus was saying. Remember I've said to you again and again, first century... Palestine, the Jews, they were primarily an illiterate people. Most of them, it was very poor, agrarian, they didn't have any education. But just because they can't read doesn't mean they weren't as smart as anybody else. And in that culture, just like I see when I'm over in Africa and so forth, they, it's, a, it's an oral tradition. And from the earliest state, they knew the scripture by hearing it and remembering. Thanks, dear. And so they would know, they would know this passage. So I want to read you two parts of it, (coughs) of uh, Exodus 30, of Ezekiel 34. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not the shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You've not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You've not brought back the strays, or searched for the lost. You've ruled them harshly and brutally, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains, and on every high hill, they were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. That is a very clear definition of, of the kinds of, of bad shepherd that Jesus is talking about. And then a few verses later, verse 11, This is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and will look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they are scattered on day of clouds and darkness. 
I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. They will lie down in good grazing land there. They will uh, feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. This is the definition of what Christ did. So, these first five verses that Dan read, they're a parable. And so Jesus, if you notice, he's speaking in the abstract. He doesn't talk about himself. He says, anyone who doesn't enter this sheep pen by the door, but comes in some other way as a thief and a robber, uh, the one who enters uh, by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. So he tells them this parable, and he doesn't refer directly to himself. But indirectly, Jesus is saying that because people are following him, and because they're trusting him, obviously that points to his true identity as the one sent by the Father to be the true King of Israel. The sheep will not follow false shepherds. Remember the context. The blind man gets healed. It's the Sabbath. The false shepherds. Here we can read the Pharisees. They say, no, 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 don't follow him, follow us. But they, the sheep will not follow the false shepherds. And that blind man would not follow what the Pharisees said. So now we go to the next section. And by the way, they didn't understand. I'll talk about that later. So they didn't understand this parable. So he, he turns and goes at it again, which he does sometimes. We see in, in Matthew 13 and Mark 4. Sometimes he does this. He goes at it again. And this time he's more specific. He speaks more directly about himself. There are seven I am's in John's gospel. Um, and, um, you know, I am the bread of life. I am the light. We get two of them in this passage. And <coughs> these I am's are so important. They are part of John's declaration that the Father and the Son are indivisible. Remember he said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I told you before that I think it's 24 times John uses I am uh, in the emphatic form in this gospel. He is, takes us right back to where we started tonight in the prologue. He is shouting in so many ways. Jesus is not a representative of the Father. He's not a smaller version of the Father. He and the Father are one. They're indivisible. Okay? So, what's he talking about? He says, okay, there's this gate or door. Some of your Bibles is about 50-50, how they translate it. And, and the sheep, not only some families, but in small villages, all of the sheep would be together in one pen, stone wall pen, with one entrance exit. And um, the shepherd would spend the night physically in that entrance to protect the sheep from predators. 
Psalm 121.8 The Lord will protect your coming and your going out, both now and forevermore. Jesus, John is saying that Jesus is the gate to salvation. <clears throat> he is a gate for the sheep. John 14.6 I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. I'm the only way in and out of the gate. <coughs> Pardon me. And then he says, because we're back to this idea that salvation isn't about praying a prayer and you go to heaven. It's about abundant life. It's about eternal life. It's a, a phrase I like. It's heaven now. And so what Jesus is saying here is if you come through me, then you are going to uh, you're going to uh, find good pasture. He's saying the same thing again and again. John 7. He stands up on the great day of the feast. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come and drink. Out of me are full rivers of living water. He says, I am the bread of life. Pasture is simply another picture for the same message. He's saying, I am the way to fullness of life. It's so much bigger than are you going to heaven or not? Because what we've done by reducing it, we've put it off to, well, when I die, it'll be okay. And the gospel is good news right now. If it, if Dan had to listen to me say this several times in Europe, if it's not good news to the poor, it's not good news. It changes life right now. Good pasture right now. And then we come to John 10.10. 10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have abundant life. I love this verse. The, the evangelist in me, some of you know that I spend a fair bit of my time out there in different countries standing outdoors telling them about Jesus. And probably eight out of ten times, no matter what I'm preaching on, I weave in John 10.10. 10. Because I talk about the thief and Jesus speaks in these universal truths, right? He says that the, the false shepherds, nobody's going to follow them and everybody's nodding, yeah, yeah. And when I'm preaching on John 10, 10, I said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Aren't you tired of him stealing your health? Aren't you tired of him stealing your peace? Aren't you tired of the conflict in your homes? Aren't you tired? Whatever list comes to my mind. And hundreds of people literally will start nodding. And then Jesus said, but I've come so that you can have abundant life. Ken's heard me weave this in a hundred times. And, and why do I love that so much? Well, first of all, I think it's really it's really clear picture. But it also, for me, is a really clear picture of what the essential work on the cross was. Because I believe the essential work on the cross was defeating the enemy, defeating the principalities and powers who bring death and destruction and sin and sickness. Jesus defeated them on the cross. That is, um, that's my conviction, that that was the number one thing that was going on. And he sets us free from the bondage that they had. So John 10.10, 10, for me, I love to preach 10.10 10 when I'm preaching on evangelism, when I'm not preaching on evangelism, when I'm preaching on Christ, that people would come to know him. 
So it's a really, really important verse. And if anybody ever wants to talk to me more about it, whenever I'm spending time with people talking a little bit about how to preach the gospel outdoors, I always spend some time, I think I did with you, Kelly, a couple of years ago, on John 10.10, because this verse is so illustrative of something theologians call uh, Christos Victor, the victory of Christ uh, over the enemy. Um, So it helps us to understand what Jesus did at the cross. So the enemy was defeated so we could have the abundant and eternal life. Now, could somebody read for me uh, 21, uh, pardon me, 11 uh, to 18? Anybody with a good loud voice, read away. I am the good shepherd. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life, not that I take it up I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Thanks, Jenny. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and pondering this passage. Twice, verse 11 and 14, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And probably we've all heard that phrase many, many times. There's churches called Good Shepherd Church. There's Good Shepherd Daycares. There's Good Shepherd, lots of stuff. Once again, um, we're caught with the trying to find an English equivalent for a Greek word, kalos. It means much more than good. It means noble. It means beautiful. It means perfect. It means model. It means wonderful. Isn't that rich? So he says, I'm the wonderful shepherd. I'm the beautiful shepherd. Um, And again, like verse 7, it's in the emphatic form, I am. So this is another one of those seven I am's that John uses. And it points us all the way back when he says, I am the good shepherd, the wonderful shepherd. It points us all the way back to Exodus 3, where Moses has his first encounter with God, and God sends him to Pharaoh, and he says, well, who should I tell him sent me? And he says, you tell them I am has sent me to you. This, it's so important that we understand the layers that's going on here. Jesus is the beautiful, noble, wonderful shepherd. And then the verses tell us why he is. First of all, because he's willing to die to protect the sheep. The shepherd protects the sheep from the wolves, right? We know that. We just know that from the culture of the shepherd. But you may not know that this became a dominant image in the early church. Huge image that comes up again and again. And even we see Paul in Acts 20 um, saying this, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock 
of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Um, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. It's, it's a theme that was very strong in the early church. That's Acts 20, 28-29. So, first of all, he, he can call himself the beautiful, noble, wonderful shepherd because he's willing to protect the sheep. And the second reason is, he says, he knows the sheep intimately. I know my own sheep, and they know me as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Now, the word he uses there for know means total and absolute knowledge. Sometimes we hear it as intimacy between a couple. So, we see here the interchange of intimate knowledge that is going on between the Father and the Son. But this, these two verses, I hung around longer than anything else as I was preparing this. There's a big, long, complicated word that's a wonderful word. Perichoresis, which is a word that means the dance of God. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the church fathers wrote a lot about it. Um, it's an image I have loved for years. I did a I did a teaching series called Dancing with Jesus about three years ago at, at NLC, and and so this word perichoresis is by the word it's the word we get choreography from um, is this interaction among in the Godhead Father Son Holy Spirit. There's this incredible interplay going on, and so when you think of that, he says. And my own sheep, they know me with such intimacy and interaction. It's as the Father knows me and I know the Father. So we are included in this choreography in the Trinity. This takes me back to where I started tonight. Why the incarnation is so important. Kelly, there is a man in heaven, part of the triune Godhead. A man. And this is our invitation into that activity. And then he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. It almost jumps out at you right here as he's talking and everything's wonderful. And then he says, and I lay down my life for the sheep. There's like a dark note in the story here. And it's going to steadily grow from this point on. Um, It's interesting, by the way, this is the last uh, chapter 10 is the last public address of Christ in John's writing. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. Um, So he's saying, I will lay down my life for the sheep. He's saying that it is his destiny to die for the sheep. Jesus is telling them that he will take upon himself the fate that would otherwise befall the sheep. But the shepherd's going to take that on himself. And it's a choice that the shepherd makes. We're back to that theme I gave you in a list this earlier of choice. <coughs> but I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. Everybody see that? Verse 16? Mm-hmm. Let me read it again. 
But I am, and it kind of jumps at us. It's like we're suddenly shifting here. He's talking all about this flock, and then he goes, oh, and by the way, <laughs> I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus came as the Messiah. And those who, who put their faith in Him and believed Him and declared Jesus is Lord, which was, you know, this huge statement, um, they could embrace that. But now He is saying, I'm going to be the Messiah, not just of the Jews, but of the whole world. He is declaring, get a hold of this. When He says this, He's saying, it's a whole new paradigm because the Gentiles no longer do I want you to think of them as your enemy, which is the only way the Jews thought of them and tend to still. Instead, he says, because they're coming into the sheepfold, part of the flock, they are now your brothers and sisters. They are the sheep who have not yet been brought into the flock, but they're coming. Guys, this would have been so shocking to those listeners, especially the Pharisees who he was addressing in this crowd. Jesus is calling for a radical paradigm shift. Frankly, it was too radical for the disciples because even after Pentecost, what happened? They stayed in Jerusalem. And, they, and he said, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the outer bowl, they just stayed there. And it was at least three years. Some historians say it could have been eight years. I think it was more like three or four years until that great persecution arose. Remember when James was executed? And they had to scatter. They ran for their lives except for the apostles who were kind of hidden away. Why did that happen? Because they didn't get this. They were, it was too radical for them. It, it, until Peter and, uh, and Cornelius happened in Acts 10, they ignored this. Or simply, they just couldn't hear it. Sometimes they just couldn't hear it. I think that there is a parallel for us. Us, primarily North American evangelicals. There's a parallel for how broad, how broad this flock is. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Well, there's a couple of things here for us. Number one, he's saying, okay, there's other sheep coming in to the flock, but they're only going to come through my death and resurrection. I may lay down my life that I may take it up again. Jesus lays down and takes up his life. He says, I lay it down, I take it up. This is so different than the normal phraseology of the New Testament. Uh, whether it's in Paul, whether it's in Acts, again and again, it's, it's the normal phrase is the Father raised him up. 
But John says, no, 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 I lay down my life and I take it up again. John continually insists that the Father and the Son are one. And they possess the same power. And they have the same authority. And this is a profound, profound insight that John had. It contributed to the, the beginning to understand uh, the understanding that developed over the next three centuries about both the Incarnation and the Trinity. It's huge what he's saying here. Guys, are you, are you getting this again? How layered John's writing is? There's so much going on. So much going on. Well, we've got verses 19 to 21. Somebody want to read those? For me, please. Therefore, there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, He has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And would you mind going back to verse 6, which is after he gives that first parable? Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Thank you. So after the first illustration, they didn't understand. And this is very consistent with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, that, um, that the crowd consistently failed to understand Jesus' parables. He even, he even references it back to Isaiah, doesn't he? You know, that, that you're... you're you're hearing, but you're not understanding. You're seeing, but you're not perceiving. They fail to understand. Often the disciples did not understand until they looked back after the resurrection. There's so much of what he said that didn't sink in until after he was crucified and raised. They went, oh. So <clears throat> he goes and then he gives this fuller explanation that we just went through, 7 to 18. But what happened with his words. What did it cause? What did it cause? A division, right? A dispute or division. I can't remember which word your translation is. Um, this is consistently what happens when the truth of the gospel is presented. Some are attracted and others are threatened. John has it right there in the prologue. We just didn't read that portion today. That, that people run to the light or they run from the light. There's not a lot of indifference. And uh, so some are attracted, others are threatened. You can watch this happening in the Gospels, in Acts, in the early church. This is what will always happen. I think the Gospel, the undiluted Gospel, the teaching of Christ um, is always controversial. Because it disturbs the status quo. It disturbs me, that's for sure. Disturbs me. So, we're going to look next week at the second half of chapter 10. Are there any, any questions or any comments from what we covered tonight? Because I actually went through it a little quicker than I thought I would. The things that hit me, just to review for me personally, like if I was sitting there and I would make a comment or ask a question, <laughs> the, uh, 
the thing that hit me is John's there's the abiding theme and then very much with it is the knowing theme this this intimate intimate absolute knowing and he says I know my own sheep and they know me as the Father knows me and I know the Father. This whole issue of the Trinity and us being invited into the activity of the Trinity, it has and continues to profoundly change my prayer life. Profoundly. And it profoundly is changing the way I read the Scripture. Um, both Old and New Testament. Because you begin to see the triune God at work right from Genesis 1. So for me, that was that, that's one that really uh, hit me pretty hard. Can you repeat the Greek, or the Hebrew, the Greek, I guess, the word that, the word the that, cor- that we get choreography from? Yeah, sure. Perichoresis. Uh, um, if you say it fast, it sounds like you know what you're talking about. <laughs> but perichoresis is a terrific word that I, I only came across a couple of years ago. And it is, it is a thematic word that um, if, if you start to read the early writings of the church fathers, they talk a lot about this. Um, they talk about this divine dance. You see, there's this, in the Trinity, there's this continual otherness. It's the giving honor to the other. If you look carefully through it, you'll see. Some of you might have been uh, with us last June when we did that that equipping conference and uh, Carlos I was just delighted to find out that Carlos Rodriguez one of our speakers who I did not know prior to the conference was on a very similar journey and when he started to talk about this the activity of the Trinity and how how the Father honors the Son the Son honors, honors the Father the Son honors the Spirit the Spirit honors the Son that, that there's this self-giving I talked a little bit about kenotic love. That's a word, kenosis, which simply means the emptying of yourself. Um, Paul says to us in Philippians 2, 5 to 11, he says, have this attitude in yourself that was in Christ Jesus, of this emptying. And so we're invited into this incredible celebration of the life of others. It's, it's quite wonderful. And... Um, so that's what that word is all about. Yes, sir. Uh, I've really been impressed over the past year and a half that and it seems like every time I get a chance to teach, I, I talk about hearing the voice of God. And, and here's that passage, that scripture that says, my sheep know my voice. Yeah. Knowing that, and this is just on a kind of a, just a practical level, because I, I want to know so I can help people. Why do, pe- why do Christians... There seems to be a lot of Christians that really struggle to recognize and hear the voice of God. That's a great question. I wonder why. (laughs) Isn't it interesting that we talk about this as the Word? But it's actually the Scriptures. Because John makes it clear the Word is a person. Jesus. Messiah. Um, One of the practical things, I think, is that we, we do not take time to be quiet. Yeah. I think it's as simple as that to just be quiet. Even our prayer time tends to be our laundry list. Um, that that as we as we learn to be quiet, 
we learn to recognize his voice so that and it was like that when my sons we lived on a cul-de-sac and there must have been 40 kids but if I opened the front door and I called up the hill because they were always tobogganing in the winter uh, and I and I said come in for supper I didn't have 40 kids come back to my door I had four boys so but it's because as you said they know the voice so I for me just my theory is a we try too hard we're, we're worried that we're not going to hear and B we don't just enjoy being quiet and letting them talk I have a good friend uh, in India who uses this verse evangelistically because he'll be with unbelievers in a living room and he'll say you know Jesus loves to talk why don't we just be quiet for a second and then just share anything that comes to you and all this somebody will say well I have this funny image you know, there's this tree and da 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 and then he'll start to talk about that well I think that's the Lord da 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 and then he takes him here and he says you can hear his voice already you can hear his voice um so I think, yeah, that's a really important part of this whole pair of courses. People are so afraid of mishearing that they're, they don't trust what they've heard. And that's why we need one another, especially at the beginning, when you're beginning to learn to hear the Father's voice, to be able to say, this is what I think he said, what do you do I remember one, one of Brad Jerzak's ex- exercises, and I, I was chatting with him, and I said, well, this is just probably my own thoughts. And he said, stop! not allowed to say that around here. Yeah. He said, assume that God is talking to you and that what you heard was his voice. Like, err on the side of that rather than dismissing it as being your own thoughts. And that was helpful to me. The other point I wanted, I would highlight if I was sitting there um, is uh, this whole thing of Jesus saying, I lay down my life and I pick it up. How how different that is from the father raised him up which is also true but John's trying to make a point that that if you've seen me you've seen the father remember he says that to Philip in John 14 um, so this is this is a radical revelation of who Christ is thanks for joining us tune in again next week when Steve dives into the second half of John chapter 10 In the meantime, don't forget to email your questions to podcast at impactnations.com and visit impactnations.com slash clean water to learn how you can give the gift of clean water to a family in need. Have a great week.